Welcome to Tardi Mechanach Yomi. My name is Adina Schmidman. Take 10 to 15 minutes each week to learn new perspectives on the Parsha. Find a new thought to bring to your Shabbos table. Sign up now at ou.org slash women slash Parsha for the weekly Parsha presentation. You'll receive an email every Wednesday with the Tardi Mecha Parsha link. Sign up as we begin Sefer Shmos. You can also download the Tardi Mecha app for the Tardi Mecha Parsha series. And now for today's Perak. Welcome to Torah Imecha Nachyomi with the Women's Initiative. My name is Chana Ringel, and today we'll be studying the book of Tzfania, Perak Aleph. Tzfania is the ninth of the 12 books of Treasar and is composed of only 53 psukim divided into three prakim chapters. What is the time period we find ourselves in when we meet Tzfania? The opening pasuk tells us both who he is and where we find ourselves in the history of Am Yisrael. The Sefer opens, Devar Hashem asher hayat el Tzfania, ben Kush, ben Gedalia, ben Amaria, ben Chizkia, bimei Yoshiau, ben Amun, melech Yehuda. Tzfania is the son of Kushi, the son of Gedalia, the son of Chizkiyahu. It is rare that a Navi's lineage, lineage goes back four generations. The commentaries differ on whether or not the Chizkiyahu mentioned as Tzfania's great-grandfather is the King Chizkiyahu, who, unlike so many others, was a tzaddik, who had done what was right in the eyes of Hashem, or if he was just another righteous individual named Chizkiyahu. This would mean that King Menashe, the notorious King Menashe, had a brother, Amaria, who did indeed follow in his father Chizkiyahu's footsteps, and would also remind us that even amongst widespread deviation from the path of Hashem, there remained those who were tzaddikim, even in the palaces, and did indeed follow the words of the Nevi'im. All the commentaries, however, agree that whether or not Tzfania was descended from Chizkiyahu the king, the delineation of the four generations indicates that he was a tzaddik from the lineage of righteous individuals. Yoshiahu was the king of Yehuda, the, the Judean kingdom at this time. He was the son of Amun, who we also know is the grandson of the notorious king Menashe, and is the reigning monarch for the king of Yehuda during the time of Tzfania's prophecy. For those of you who may not remember Yoshiahu from earlier, let's do a quick recap of this unbelievable individual and this very pivotal time period for the Jewish people. His reign of 31 years can be understood best by dividing it into four time periods, beginning in 640 BCE and ending with his death in 609 BCE. This was about 23 years before the Chorban Beit Hamikdash, the destruction of the temple, in 586 BCE by the Babylonians. Yoshiao was crowned at only eight years old when he took over for his father, Amon. His first eight years as king, from 640 to 632 BCE, he is young. During this time, it is understood and assumed that Yoshiao was guided to allow the nation to continue as it had been during the reigns of Amon and Manasha. The nation continues to be led and filled with avodazara, corruption, and social injustice. The next four years, from 632 to 628 BCE, Divrei Hayamim tells us, Hechil Lidrosh Lelokei David Aviv, that Yoshiao began to search for the God of David, his forefather. And we see young Yoshiao evolving and manifesting a different style and a different belief system than the monarchy he inherited. The next six years, from 628 to 622 BCE, he began a campaign to purify Yerushalayim from Avodah Zarah, a campaign that spread even beyond the borders of Yehuda 
as Yoshiao's political reign expanded into the remnants of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom as well. The famous event of Yoshiao finding the Sefer Torah is in the 18th year of his reign, and for the next 13 years until his death, so from 622 to 609 BCE, he demolished, to the best of his knowledge, and certainly as a policy, any Avodah Zarah, breaking and burning every remnant that he could find. He renewed the nation's commitment and bris with Hashem, celebrated a massive and symbolic Pesach, and in a sense forced the nation into Avodah Hashem, service of God, and with that, an attempt to correct the social injustice and oppression. We know from other Svarim, as well as from history, that the nation was not as enthusiastic or as sincere as he was. During his time, there were those who did indeed join Yoshiao and Tshuva, but many did not, and many led a life of confusion or hypocrisy, where they seemed to believe they could serve both Hashem and Avodah Zarah. The Navi tells us that Yoshiao is a model for Tshuva. What I find amazing is that Yoshiao was well aware that some sort of punishment, and even Chorban, was coming down the road, and the nation could no longer be spared from being punished completely. However, that did not stop him one bit from doing what he had to do, both for himself and for the people. The subtle message of believing in Rachme Hashem, the mercy of God, believing that our actions matter and can still impact the nature of the punishment, believing that every step in the right direction is monumental enough to have been recorded for posterity in the prophets, is a source of both comfort and inspiration. The Gemara tells us three Nevi'im, three prophets, nit nabu ba'uto ha'perek, prophesized during the same time period, the one we find ourselves in now, shortly before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the first being Yirmiyahu, who was in a sense stationed in the marketplaces, what I imagine to be the malls, the supermarkets, possibly Instagram, Hulda, the prophetess for the women, and Tzfanya, our Navi, our prophet, was in the Batei Midrashim and Batei Knesiot, we are told by the Gemara, the religious gathering places. This information is important in terms of knowing who a majority of his audience was, and perhaps they were a group who deemed themselves elite, safe, and righteous to some degree. Some suggest that the entire Sefer is one long prophecy, while others divide it into three Nevu'u prophecies, still with unifying themes. Keeping that in mind, let's begin with Parak Aleph today. The prophecy opens in verses 2 and 3 with a morbid picture of destruction. Asof asaf kol, kol me'al p'nei Hadama, the double language of Asaf, Asof, rooted in Sof, in Finnish, or in Asaf, gather. Hashem says, I will sweep away or gather for destruction, coal, everything from the face of the earth, continuing to a more detailed description in the next Pasuk. Asof Adam Ubehema, I will, I will destroy man and animal. Asof Of Hashemayim Yam, and I will destroy the birds in the heavens and the fish of the waters, and continues, I will cut off man from the face of the earth. The variety of terms for destruction and the term coal, everything. This reminds us of the verse just before the Mabel, the flood, where the Torah states in God says, I will erase the man that I have created from on the earth. And, um, from man to animal to crawling creatures to the birds in the skies, bringing us back to the first time God brought a harban, a destruction of sorts, onto mankind. This brings me back actually even earlier into the book of Bereshit, to the sixth day of creation, chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. 
that God created man in his image, and he charged us with Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the animals. The setup is clear. Man is created in the image of Hashem, with a higher mission, to use the world in a manner in which we express and develop the Salam Elohim, and connect with God. Rashi, on the sixth day of creation, links the world's existence as a conditional one to the acceptance of the Torah. And here in Svanya, I cannot help but hear the Navi telling us that we have failed in the upkeep of Torah and have failed in how we relate to the world that God gave us to elevate. So there will be some sort of undoing of creation in a declaration of man's failure to live as a Tzalmolokim and specifically us as a Torah nation. It is with this message that the Navi introduces himself to us. The Ebenezer explains that the world will not be destroyed. Rather, we will be literally cut off from the land that we live on and sent into exile. The Radak similarly takes a pragmatic approach, explaining that the innocent birds and fish will not be destroyed. Rather, they will not remain in a place that is desolate. Once there is a Chorban, a destruction of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, it will not be a useful reservoir for the wildlife. And so they will leave. The Navi tells us God will stretch out his hand. Unlike the Pesach story where God's outstretched arms represented his redemption, here it will be to punish Yehuda and Yerushalayim. The people of Yerushalayim felt elite, protected by virtue of housing the Beis HaMikdash and the royal palace. Destroying the Avodazara in verse 4, every last remnant of representation of the pagan god Baal. Perhaps this is before Yoshiao's repentance movement. Perhaps some pockets remained. Hashem states he will destroy the name of the Kamarim and the Kohanim. Kamarim generally refers to the term for priests of pagan worship. Perhaps these are two separate groups, or perhaps as Navi is indicating that the presence of corruption among the Kohanim in the Beit HaMikdash as well. In verse 5, Tzvanya gives us some insight into the different factions of the nation. Those that are Mishtachavim al Hagagot that bow on their rooftops to the heavenly bodies. King Menashe had introduced the worship of Eshtar, which was a heavenly god, clearly doing Avodah And then there are those, the Navi says, Those that were bouncing between Hashem and the pagan gods, a theme we see often in Yirmiyahu at this time period as well. The Matsudo David, however, sees this as three distinct groups. There are those that worship Avodazara. There are those that worship Hashem. And then there are those that believe in absolutely no higher power. And so they swear in the name of Malkam, their king, as opposed to Malkam coming from the root Molech, the pagan god, or Malcolm. And they saw that their power was just in the king they had, having no higher faith. The Navi continues that amongst those afflicted, will be those that turn their back on Hashem, that once were with Hashem and then went astray. And then there will be those, lo bikshu et Hashem velo dershuhu. They did not seek Hashem. They did not turn to him to look for him. Apathy, indifference, or a lack of belief, as the Radak explains, that Hashem would do anything, good or bad, that he's just not involved. And so what's the point? Whenever the Navi cries out over the people not being mivakesh Hashem, seeking out God, I can't help but wonder if this is a subtle member message to remind us how to show up to Hashem with everything. Of course, with our praises and our prayers, but with our struggles and our doubts as well. As the Navi says, Hashem is looking for us to come to him with our confusion and our troubles as well. 
In verse 7, the Navi introduces the terrifying Yom Hashem, the day that will bring silence on us, on which Hashem will bring slaughter and turn us into sacrifices. The day is karov, it is close, it is approaching. Upakadati al hasarim va'al b'nei melech, And God will punish, he will remember the deeds of and follow through with punishment, the officers and the princes, to slaughter them. The Radak explains this to refer to a specific event as the exact same language of shachat, to slaughter, is used to describe the death of the sons of Tzidkiyahu and the officers by the, the king of Babel in Yirmiyahu chapter 52, and that these were the perpetrators of social injustice in the nation. Then there are those who quote-unquote dress in the foreign garments who too will be punished. Lovshim malbush nachri. Ibn Kaspi refers this to the false prophets, prophets who wore specific clothing. Rashi explains it to be the garments that are associated with Avodah And Radak quotes his father to describe the times, the social injustice. If one was in power and he would see someone wearing something that they wanted, he would simply take it, using the force of status to oppress, and that this behavior permeated the government offices and royal palaces, the Navi calling it Hamas and Mirma, lawlessness and fraud. The Navi continues, with an imagery of sound that takes us through the northern empire of the Babylonian nation, or King Nebuchadnezzar, ripping through the city from the north, all the way down into the heart of the city. If we look at Psukim Yud and Yud Aleph, 10 and 11, there will be a kolza'aka, a sound of cries, at the Shar Hadagim, the gate of the fish merchants, known to be in the northern wall of Jerusalem. We know that this fell during the Babylonian invasion, invasion, and we actually know that it was rebuilt, as it is mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 3. And then there will be a yilala, a wave from the Mishneh. This is either a gate in the northwestern wall or a quarter within Jerusalem, where it is mentioned that the prophetess Huldah lived. The verses continue. This will be followed by a shever gadol in the gva'ot, in the hills. A shever can be the sound of calamity or, crown, or cries that we are broken from what happened, or it can mean broken, the literal crashing and thrashing of stones and the breaking of buildings that will be heard throughout. And finally, the Navi tells us that those that live in the Machtesh, in the lowlands, between the hills of the east and west, hitting the southern aspect of the city, at the end of this path from entering the city at the north, hey Lilu, wait and cry, for all the tradesmen have perished, the Nitile Kesef. The Malbim sees this as an indication of the economic collapse as well. The wealthy who had traded goods and thought themselves to be protected and safe. God tells us, I will search out Jerusalem with candles. He will look in the crevices where the general light can't reach and hunt down everyone who needs to be punished. This overarching theme of retribution and punishment from which there will be no escape. The Midrash, though, comments on this image and adds a glimmer of hope that at some point, the Shabbat candles that we light and have lit to honor the Shabbat and declare our belief in God will be used midah keneged midah, measure for measure by God, to one day light up Jerusalem into a city of bright lights. This is not the simple meaning of the verse in our context, but reminds us of the layers and facets to Torah, to our history, and to our future. Our wealth will not save us, and then the Navi paraphrases the curses Noted in the book of Devarim, chapter 28, We will build houses and not merit to live in them, plant vineyards, but not enjoy the wine thereof. The last set of psukim, psukim Yadalatir Chet, 14 to 18, focus on this Yom Hashem, 
the day of Hashem that has been mentioned in other places in Tanakh. And we will speak more about this in chapter 3. But to note that Tzfanya is a mere 53 psukim, with Yom Hashem mentioned 23 times. In our chapter, all the relation to the punishment and retribution associated with the day of revelation of God's absolute power. It will be Karov and Maher, close and fast, and Gadol, a day of bitter and shrieking of the Gibor, the mighty ones will be crying out bitterly, or perhaps the Gibor, the mighty ones will be declaring that Yom Hashem has arrived. It is a day of wrath, a Yom Tzara a day of distress and anguish, Shoah Umeshu'ah, ruin and desolation. The repetitive language, the poetry, the repetitive sounds are found in the end of the parak. Will the day be dark from death and destruction? Will the revelation of truth elicit a depth of anguish and despair in our souls? Is this a day of the past or the future, something we will have to revisit? With the sounds of the shofar stirring up the images of enemy war trumpets or cries at the enemies, as the enemies break through the fortified cities, this description of disintegration of all the things we thought would protect us, the avodah the indifference, the power, the wealth, the walls, none of it will withstand this day. Hashem closes the chapter of the Nevuah with a warning. And I will bring distress upon the man, perhaps the siege itself from the word matzor, a siege, which we know is the first stage in the ultimate fall of Jerusalem. The Malbim explains that as the distress and the siege begin, we will fail to notice that it is a result of our sinning. And we will continue to walk like the blind, not seeing what's right in front of us, the message from Hashem which will bring us further calamity and destruction. We will walk like blind because we have sinned to Hashem. The Navi is teaching us how things work. If we cut ourselves off from Hashem, if we sin, then indeed we have cut ourselves off from our lifeline, and we will be left wandering in the dark. In this parak, we are warned of the impending destruction that will come as a result of abandoning both Hashem as our God and abandoning one another and creating a society of social injustice and oppression. What will the punishment look like? On the one hand, it seems as the Navi describes the literal invasion from the north by Babylonia with imagery, sound, and root. On the other hand, the theme of Yom Hashem, a day on which Hashem is revealed, and that itself destroys the notion of Avodah Zarah in the world and cleanses the world from that which does not align with or reflect godliness. It is a day to fear and a day we will not be able to escape. Thank you for studying together. Le'iloi Nishmat Riva Schwab. Rivka Bat Alexander Sender.